Well, I want to, um, I want to kind of uh, catch us up to speed. This is a good point to, before we make this transition, to see where we've been. And uh, as I uh, thought about this and thought about catching us up on where we've been, it was helpful to me because I didn't think we had accomplished much in this teaching on Sunday night, and then I went back through what we have done and realized we've covered a lot of ground uh, during the time that we have been in this series, Doctrines for Living. We began talking about the condition in our culture. Uh, The Doctrines for Living series is about what the Bible teaches and how we can receive what the Bible teaches and bring it into our lives in a practical way. You and I live in a culture that has a higher biblical illiteracy rate than at any time in the history of America. We have more people who, who know less about the Bible in the United States of America than ever. And a lot of those people are in our churches because a lot of our churches are engaged in the kind of preaching of the Word of God that does not take people into the Bible. It's the kind of preaching of God's Word that selects a topic and develops the topic as a sermon and then goes and finds a text, a scripture, to support what they want to say. Now, I don't doubt that where this happens, people are praying, seeking to speak what God wants spoken, but it's the kind of preaching and teaching where the sermon comes first and the text comes later. It has produced over time, we have been practicing this kind of preaching and teaching in our churches since the turn of the 20th century, and over time it's developed weak and anemic people in our churches who do not really know the Word of God. It has produced over time two alternatives, and you see this in uh, our churches. And these alternatives that it's produced are radically different, but they represent a personal approach to the Word of God and to Christianity that is far removed from the Bible. One approach it's produced is that Our relationship to God is private and personal only, and that it is to be experiential. We want to feel something, and we want to feel it emotionally, and as long as we feel it emotionally, that's all that counts. We're not concerned so much about the objective truth of the Bible as we are being in a service that will stir us and shake us and create in us this intensely emotional experience. The problem with that is that those emotional experiences don't last, do they? They can't sustain us over the long haul. And what happens in America is that people flip from church to church looking for that in the next place. Or they think that something's wrong with them when they are not having that emotional high in their relationship with God. This is the status of Christianity in our culture. 
And it is creating havoc in our churches where those that want to please people want to create the kind of services where week after week we do something else, something different, something extraordinary to create that kind of emotionally high experience. The other extreme that is produced in our churches is a very rational approach, a very logical approach uh, to everything. We, we, we say, I'm not going to believe it if it doesn't make sense. If you can't explain it to me fully, if you don't understand it fully, then I'm not going to believe it. Well, you know, some of uh, what I preached this morning from Daniel 9, and we'll continue to preach from Daniel 10 and 11, of these kinds of visions... They are confusing, and they're perplexed, and they're hard to understand. And so if, uh, if we approach them in a very rational, logical way, and people say, I'm not going to believe that truth in Daniel unless you can make it make sense to me, well, you'll never believe it because I don't know anybody alive who can make it make sense to you or to me in a way that would be acceptable to us. This is the kind of culture we live in. People are at a low level of biblical literacy, and yet when they talk about a relationship with God, they either talk about their heart or their mind, and they don't see you can't separate those two. You can't love God with all your heart if you don't love him with all your mind, and you can't love him with all your mind if you don't love him with all your heart. We we cannot separate those two things and be faithful followers of Jesus. So in a culture where we are basically biblically illiterate, worse than we've ever been, we must ask the question, how do we know God? That's where we went next. How do we know God? We know God through the way he's made his world. He's made his world so that we can know him through the things that he's made. We know him through the special revelation that is the Bible. Do you know that when you look at your life and you think about how you organize your life, if you were to do that right now, where does the meaning of life begin for me? That meaning either begins within you or it begins beyond you. If meaning in life begins within you, then meaning in life is found in whatever you think is good, right, and best. And you're going to, that's the way of reason. I have the capability to know what's good, to know what's right, and to know what's best. You better be right about that. Because if you're wrong, you're going to travel a long ways down a long road. And in the end, in the face of the God who rules the universe, you're going to be not only disappointed, you're going to be devastated. You and I, believe, as believers, we make no apology. You should never apologize for this. Our operating assumption is that the meaning of life is given by God. And God has given us the meaning of his life in his word. And if I'm going to know anything about what life is about, it will be found from God as he speaks to me through his word. And the more I know his word, the more I know what meaning in life is all about. That's where we start to understand who we are and why we're here and what we believe. So 
We talked about how we know God. We talked about the Bible as the Word of God. We have to know God through His Word because that's where God speaks to us. And then we talked about the doctrine of God. Who is God? We talked about His attributes. We talked about the will of God. How do we know the will of God? We talked about providence. God's at work in His world in a way that's unfolding His sovereign purpose. We talked about creation. And then we spent a lot longer than I ever anticipated talking about angels and demons. But tonight, we turn to the doctrine of sin. Now, the big word for it is harmatology. The, the Greek word for sin is armatia, from which we get this English phrase, or this English word, harmatology. Now, I wouldn't normally do this, but I want to begin with several confessional statements because I want you to see that for a lot of modern history, churches that firmly believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of Scripture have taken their beliefs, their beliefs and framed them in confessional statements. We Baptists, we, we, get a, we get the hives when somebody says the word creed around us. So we don't use that word. We stay away from that word. One, one, one of these days when I get really bold, we're going during a Lord's Supper service to say together the Apostles' Creed. Because it is historically foundational for what the church has believed from the earliest centuries. So what the church has done is taken what she believes and she's put them in these confessional statements and you can go across the board of the Protestant church and you can find a lot of similarities in our confessional statements. For example, this is the confessional statement called the 39 Articles of the Anglican Episcopal Church. By, by the way, today, right now, if you're going to serve as a priest or deacon in the Anglican Church, you have to sign that you believe the 39 Articles. And the foundational article is that you're signing, I believe in the absolute inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of Holy Scripture. Now, if you meet an Episcopalian who actually believes that, you've met a very odd Episcopalian. The confessional statement, signing it, is seen as a ritual. It's just something we do. It doesn't have any meaning. Yes, it has great meaning. So look at this one. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he, you see the next word? cannot. Now this confessional statement is communicating already that we are so sinful that our wills are corrupt and we could not turn to God if we wanted to on our own. We have no natural ability. We cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and to calling upon God, wherefore we have power to do good works 
pleasant, and acceptable to God. In our state as sinners, we would not turn to God because we cannot turn to God and we cannot fulfill the mandate of God's mission in the world on our own. So what do we need? He, the statement tells us, without the grace of God, now this word here trips us up, without the grace of God, preventing us. Now, when this confession was first written, the word prevent had an entirely different meaning than it does today. The word prevent does not, did not mean when this statement was written to stop something from happening. It simply meant to go before to prepare for what is going to take place. So preventing grace is the kind of grace that works in us through the mercy of God that prepares us for the experience of the fullness of God's grace. Let me illustrate this for you. I promise you there are people here tonight who when you come to think about how God saved you by his grace, you can look back over the course of your life and you can see how God showed up in your life lots of other times. And until you were saved, you did not know those events that had happened were from God. That's preventing grace. It's the grace that goes before preparing our hearts and lives through the great love and mercy of God for his children for that moment when we yield our lives to God. I'll promise you one other thing. I promise you, many of you can look back over your life before you came to that place where God saved you by his grace and some of those things that God was doing to prepare you for his saving you, some of those things were not good. Some of them were really bad. And God was, you look back and say, thank you, Jesus, just thank you that you took me through that experience because I don't think that my eyes would have been open and my heart tender to receive the gospel. So look at what it says, without the grace of God preventing us, that we may have a good will. It assumes this statement assumes that we are born with corrupt wills and God changes our wills through the power of his Holy Spirit working with us when we have that will. That's one statement. I want you to see several because these are the historic confessions of the church that have been believed and studied and practiced this is the Westminster Confession, the Confession of Faith of Presbyterians. The sinfulness of that state whereinto man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So original sin is two things. Original sin is Adam's sin. Original sin, no sin on earth prior to that. And it's our inheritance through Adam of his sin. It consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, 
the want, this is old English Shakespearean spelling, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature. This is the teaching that we are fallen from the grace of God in Adam from the moment we're conceived and from the moment of birth as we live, we are a fallen people and we are fallen totally. This is the teaching of radical depravity. Whereby he is... Now look at these words because these words are important. We, wherein he is utterly indisposed. That is, after he sinned, Adam had nothing in him that moved him toward God. Everything moved him away from God. In the account of Genesis, does Adam move toward God? What does Adam do? He hides. Who moves toward Adam? God. We are by nature utterly indisposed. We are disabled. That means we have no ability. And we're made opposite to all that is spiritually good. And we're wholly inclined to all evil. And that, what? Continually. This is our nature as sinners. That is why when, when sinners encounter someone who will lovingly share the gospel with them so they are encountered with the gospel, if the Holy Spirit works in that encounter to begin the work of the conviction, that sinner under conviction, are they going to call you the next day and say, Hey, hey, Brian, can we talk again? No. No, they're not going to run toward God. They're going to run away from God. Because we, we enjoy being in that state of sinfulness where we can live however we want to live, even if we cover it with the rags of our own righteousness. We studied that this morning, didn't we? Look at Genesis chapter 6. Go back to our Gospel Project Sunday School material from this morning. Genesis chapter 6, God has developed two lines, the line of Cain under his judgment, the line of Seth under his blessing. It's very clear at the end of Genesis 4 into Genesis 5. And then in Genesis 5, we have the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Genesis 6, we have Noah. Genesis 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that is, those men who belong to God, they saw the daughters of man, that is, those women who belong to the line of Cain, they saw the daughters of men, a man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, do you find it interesting that as early as the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, God is saying to us that the core corruption of human beings can be seen clearly in how we treat marriage. The text is there. 
What is the most important thing that a young man will ask? A young man who's a believer, what's the most important question he'll have asked about his prospective mate? The only question that really matters, what is it? Is she a Christian? Thank you. Because God has made it clear believers are not to marry unbelievers. I told this story in Sunday school uh, this morning when Jared and Haley started dating and got engaged and got married. We got to know Jared's parents. They're wonderful, godly people, and they're some of our best friends. We love spending time with them. And Jared's mother told me that after Jared was born and his sister was born, Megan, that Dave and she began to pray every day for their future spouse. And they prayed with a list. And the first thing on their list was their future spouse be a believer, a faithful follower of Jesus that their future spouse love the church and be active in the church, that their future spouse be one who understood what marriage is and what the role of the husband and wife is in marriage, that their future spouse have a love for the Word of God and growth in the grace and knowledge of God. That's what they prayed. When Jared and Megan got older, Michelle and Dave told them, we've been praying since you were born for your prospective spouse. And here's what we've been praying for. Jared said to his mother, can I add one more thing? And she said, well, what would you add? And he said, well, is it wrong for me to want her to be pretty? So she said, I I reckon not. So Jared began to pray with them. That list, including pretty. One night he called his mother, and we didn't know this story until after they were married. One night he called his mother and he said, Mama, I found my wife. She loves Jesus. We're involved here in Macon in the same church. We, We work together in the church. And on top of it, Mama, she is really hot. <laughs> and she was pretty. Now, now look, we, we shouldn't take these things lightly. We shouldn't say, because God, this is his absolute truth. And he says, this is where it all begins to fall apart. Look at what he says. Then the Lord, verse 3, said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. This is the nature of our humanity. We are flesh. We are driven by the desires of our flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is not about the length of his life. This is about the length of God's patience before he brings the full force of his judgment. The Nephilim, this special group of very strong and powerful people were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness, verse 5, look at this. 
he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God. And this is God's assessment of us without the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. This is what sin does to every human being. The Baptist faith and message statement is long and convoluted. I'm not going to even go into why it's long and convoluted, but it is. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin. Adam was and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. Absolutely. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherited a nature and an environment inclined to sin. Therefore, as soon as they're capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Now, I just want to point out to you that among Southern Baptists, this last line here, do you know why it's there? Because there are Southern Baptists who believe that we're not born in sin, we're born neutral. And sin enters when we choose to sin. That is not in the Bible, that's contradictory to the teaching of the Bible, but this is a part of the nature of having a big tent and having lots of different people from lots of different perspectives with lots of different differing theologies that are a part of the big tent. One more. This is my favorite Baptist confession. It was the foundational Baptist confession for Baptists both in England and America. It is strong. It's the second London Confession of 1689. It was the confession of all Baptists for many years of our history until you get into the late 19th and early 20th century. Our first parents, by their sin, fell from original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, Romans 5, all becoming dead in sin and holy, that is, completely defiled in faculties and parts of soul and body. Sin was imputed because of Adam. We are in Adam, his sin in us. We're all sinners together. And corrupt nature conveyed so that we are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and the subjects of death, unless Jesus sets us free. If you say to someone, you need to give your life to Jesus, and you don't include this kind of information about who we are when we're in sin, you have done them a great disservice. And you have become an agent of deception in their life, not an agent of illumination. Why do I need Jesus? Your, your answer better be far more than so you can go to heaven when you die. 
You need Jesus because he's our only hope in life and death. You need Jesus because he alone can remove the stench and stink of your sin. You need Jesus because he's the only one who can take you from under the wrath of God and bring you into the beautiful water flowing with the streams of the riches of the mercy and grace of God. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, summarizes for us, I believe, the, the teaching of the confessions. Sin is want of conformity to the law of God and the transgression of it. We are sinners and we sin because we're sinners. It is the devil's firstborn. Until it is removed, there is no coming where God is. God cannot be where sin is. And where sin is, God is not present to hear us, to receive us, and to respond to us until we cry out, Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here's our flow for this teaching on sin. The meaning of sin, what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about sin? Do you, do you hear this? Do you hear in our culture, not many people talk about sin anymore? I goofed up. <laughs> I make a lot of mistakes. I say things I ought not to say. We've got a hundred circumlocutions for talking about sin, but we didn't talk about sin. And when we sin in our day, we tend to think about horizontal. I sinned against Jerry. Well, if I sin against Jerry and could well sin against Jerry and he against me, if I sin against Jerry, the grossest violation of my sin is never against Jerry Councilman. Who is it against? It's God. All sin is an offense to our holy God. What is it? What is the source of sin? Where does sin come from? What is the scope of sin? How far does it extend? extend? And what is the solution to sin? How is it to be addressed? Now, I want you to go with me back to the book of Daniel. I've had so much, uh, I, I wouldn't say fun. It hadn't always been fun, but I've had a great experience spiritually. If you get nothing out of the book of Daniel, then thank God and thank you for letting me teach it because I have, I, ha I don't know that I've ever taught a book I've enjoyed teaching more than this one, about which I knew very little before I started, which is a good thing because I probably wouldn't have tackled it. Daniel chapter 9. Verses 5 and 6, I didn't have time to stop here and I haven't had time to stop in Daniel and dig deeply into the text anywhere, but I didn't hear. This is Daniel's prayer. Daniel 9 verse 5, we have sinned. Now the word for sin here is the word that's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament and equally with a numerical frequency in the New Testament. The Hebrew word and the Greek word are the same. It describes our basic condition as sinners. 
It is the Greek word harmatia from what we get, what we get harmatology. It means we've missed the mark. We can't hit the bullseye. And we're born that way. And then what Daniel does is he uses a number of words to begin to talk about in his prayer how we sin as sinners. Now listen to what he says. This is illustrative for Daniel as he's praying. This is not exhaustive. It is descriptive of our sins. It's not finally definitive. We've sinned. We're sinners. That's what it means. We have sinned because we're sinners. So how have we sinned? Number one, he says, we've done wrong. Now, if, you're do, if you've done wrong, what have you got to know? If I'm doing wrong, what have I got to know? What's right? So as believers, how do I know what is right? I listened to my mama. My mama told me that was wrong. No. Right is determined by God in his law. Violation of the law is profaning God, and we all do it. We've all done wrong by the standard that God has set. Number two, we've acted wickedly. We've thought things, said things, done things that are evil. Number three, just listening to Daniel here, we have, we have rebelled. We've run away from God. The worst form of rebellion against God in any culture is to run away from God while absolute, being absolutely convinced in your heart that you're absolutely running with God. Because you've got your own view of who God is. And you've got your own view of what it means to be a child of God. You don't have the view of Scripture because you're not spending a lot of time listening to Scripture. But you're confident that you belong to God while God knows that you're in absolute rebellion against Him. Turning aside from your commandments and rules. The end of verse 5. This is all sin. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. They've heard them, but they've not listened to them. They've not responded to them in repentance because they've dismissed these men who have brought them the word of God as those who are simply presenting their own thoughts on various religious subjects. So, we're going to talk about what it means that we're sinners, what it means that we sin, and how that is so essential for our understanding the wonder, just the incredible wonder of the mercy and grace of God. Now, this means... 
as I wrap this up for tonight, this means that you and I need to give some serious thought. And when I say serious thought, I don't mean go aside, go aside somewhere in a private place and think this through. I'm talking about the only serious thought I believe is biblical thought. We have to learn to think biblically. And to learn to think biblically means we have to read, study, reflect on the Word of God so the Bible gets inside of us. I wonder if any of you remember, because I remember this vividly, in my own life, being a young believer, just getting started. This may be different for you if you were raised in the church and you had parents who taught you the Word of God. But being a young believer and being around people that you knew far exceeded you in your knowledge of God through His Word. That, that compared to them, you didn't have a clue. That compared to them, you were so far behind that, that you couldn't skip any grades in this school. And there was no way you were going to get into the gifted program in this school. You were way, way behind. I remember that in my own life. And just listening to people who knew God's Word, and they, they, they bled God's Word. And I remember thinking, I want that for my life. I want to be full of this book. Because that's what we're after as a believer, to know and be infiltrated every day, saturated in the Word of God. Don't think I'll make it, but that's still a deep desire in me. I was with Steve at this conference two weeks ago, and I heard men preach. And it wasn't that I went away thinking I want to preach like that because I believe every preacher preaches through his personality. I'm not trying to preach like anybody else. I want to preach like me. But I can tell you what I want. I listen to these men preach, and I walked away thinking I want to know the Bible like they know the Bible. I want to be that full of this truth. So we have to learn to think biblically, and if we can't, Think biblically. We have to learn from those who are beyond us, spiritually mature belong beyond us, who've learned to think biblically. And I want you to think biblically about the nature of humans. Who are we? Who are we as human beings in terms of our basic nature in relationship to God? When you read the Bible, it's reduced to three options. Three options. Now, I believe, and I'll just be up front with you, I believe the Bible teaches only one of these options because I, I don't think this is multiple choice. But number one, there are people, there may be people like this in our church, I don't know, that believe humans are born, conceived and born and made by God basically good. What we need is information through education and a right environment, and we will become everything God wants us to become. 
This is the view of our world. This is a secular humanistic view. It infiltrates every major university system in our country. This is how classes are taught from this perspective. We're basically good, and what we need to do is have the information and the education and the environment so we can be good. This is also the view of liberal Christians, that we're basically good, and we need to see the fullness of the love of God and be embraced by the fullness of the love of God so that we can know what we're really singing when we sing when we all get to heaven. Because a true liberal believes at the last day, who's going to be in heaven? Everybody. That's one view. I used to hold that view. And then I got to know two people. I got to know other people. That was one people. But you know what was really bad? I got to know me. And it blew up that liberal theory. Number two, there are many Baptists who believe this second one. We're not totally sinful. We're just partially sinful. We got a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, and they're kind of at war with each other. We are free. We have the ability from birth. Our sin is not so bad that it's taken away our ability to choose God. Whenever we get ready to choose God, God has made the offer. We accept the offer. Salvation is a cooperative agreement between us and God. He does his part. We do our part, and we're in this thing together. That's a low view of God, a high view of man. There is no such thing as partial depravity. When we get to know ourselves and our own hearts, that's the view of theologically what is known as Arminianism. It has been taught from the 4th century forward. Arminius, not in the 4th century, but others that preceded him. It was the cause in many ways of the Great Reformation in the 16th century because of the awareness of the holiness and justice of God and our own deep depravity. So that brings me to the third view. We're totally, fully sinful. We have no ability from birth to move toward God. We would never move toward God if God did not move toward us. Our minds are sinful, our hearts are sinful, our feelings are sinful, our wills are sinful. Well, this is the view of the Reformation. This was the view of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Heinrich Zwingli, many, many others down through the flow of history. This is the view that believes that we are saved exclusively by the grace of God. If God did not come to you in the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and to call you to Jesus, you would never be saved. Now, you might make a choice one day, and you might choose to do whatever you do, but salvation is rooted in what God does in you and for you, and He loves you so much that He brings you under the weight and woe of your sin. And He shows you your sin to the extent that you hate your sin. And you want that sin gone. 
And you know that there's only one place where your sin is taken away, and that's the cross. And from the cross, you rise up by the power of the resurrection to live every day of your life to give glory and honor and praise to the one who loved you so much that he died for you. You can't mix and match these views. We all in this room stand at one place or another. My question for us as we go into this doctrine of sin is not what do you think and what do I think and what does some superstar theologian think. I want to know what God says. What does God say in his word about the extent of our sin, the source of our sin, the scope of our sin, so that we can hear what God says about the only solution there is to our sin. And that's where we will continue next week. We are having this reception from 4.30 to 5.30, but we're going to continue um, with our Sunday night study and with everything else next Sunday night as well. Father, sin is ugly. It's more than a mistake. It's more than a misstep. It's more than messing up. God, I pray that you'd help me and help us not to hide behind what we're prone to say, well, we're all sinners. Well, that is true. But you sent Jesus despised and rejected beaten and bruised, bowed down beneath the weight of the blows, scarred by all the sarcasm that came to the, from the crowds passing by. In pain that was so agonizing that he was crying out, and there on that cross he didn't bear the weight of our mistakes. He didn't bear the weight of our missteps. He didn't bear the weight of, oh, we're just all sinners. He bore the weight of our sin. So that we could be delivered. We could be delivered by coming to Jesus from the punishment of our sin forever. And during the course of our lives, we could be delivered from the power of sin in our lives, the oppressive, demonic power of sin. And we could live every day looking forward to that day when sin and sorrow will cease and the beauty and joy of being with you in your presence will forever and ever increase. So give us grace for today as we fight our sin and give us grace for the future when we look for that day when there will be no more sin. In Jesus' name, amen.